This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. Sounds like we're got some new music to kick off 2024 on our new show. Uh, I'm Jeremy Schwartz, the host. We've got Professor Siegel, who's Warren Fines Professor and Senior Economist to Wisdom Tree, joining us uh, to kick off the show. We've got Kevin Flanagan, who's Head of Fixed Income Strategy, joining me as a co-host and a guest today. We'll be talking with Chris Asit of Gapstyle Capital Partners about the outlook for credit. Uh, but please note, Kevin and I are registered representative for Foresight Fund Services. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of investment products. The user, I guess, are their own. Uh, professor, uh, we start off the year. We've got a interesting labor market report, a lot of data out on the wires this year. Um, you had a little bit of weakness in tech, but also a lot of things just queuing off the bond market. So I'm looking forward to the full conversation on the show. But what's your read of the data and how we're kicking off the year? Yeah, I think it's just profit taking on those tax. I mean, no one wanted to pay their capital gains tax in 2023, so they <laughs> delayed to 2024. I, I was also amused when everyone talked about the uh, you know Santa Claus rally, and they included the first two days of 2024. That is not the traditional one. It's the Christmas week. Uh, now you know between Christmas and New Year's, somehow they added two days, and that kind of destroyed the so-called uh, you know Santa Claus rally. Uh, it did happen uh, between Christmas and New Year's. We did have a really good market, um, and it, it probably extended a little too far. Um, but let's get to the data. The data is more of the good of the same, and that's good. Um, we the economy is moving forward at a healthy pace. Uh, I would say a Goldilocks pace, not too strong, certainly not too weak. I mean, we got those jobless claims just hovering around uh, above 200,000. Of course, let's take a look at today's labor market report. Now, the the headline number, you know, was a a bit above consensus, but there were revisions below consensus. Unemployment came in one-tenth under expectation, matching uh, the previous month. Now, what disturbed the market, I think what caused the sell-off in bonds initially uh, was that uh, the average hourly earnings came in one-tenth over and on the year-over-year, two-tenths over expectation, moving up from 4.0 to 4.1. Now, as we've been saying on this show for a long time, but it seems to be beyond the people that are on the financial networks to understand, <laughs> is that there's a the gap between wages and inflation is productivity growth and productivity growth has been extremely robust and i think is continuing to be robust the average productivity growth is two and a half percent a year so to go you know uh, you know knee jerk oh my goodness we're up to 4.1 or you know before uh, higher than the previous month you've got to subtract productivity growth you subtract two and a half percent and i'm not saying that's what it's going to be for that month, but as an average of 2023, you get below 2% inflation from that number. So again, uh, w- wages are a very imperfect uh, guide to what the inflationary pressures in the economy. Now, what are the inflationary pressures in the economy? Obviously, the problem in the Red Sea has pushed oil up, not the other commodities. They're quite stable, if not going down, but oil has been pushed up a little bit. But that's, a, that's about it. There's really not much uh, anything else inflation to worry about. Of course, next week, and in our broadcast, we will, of course, talk about it. We're going to have the CPI and the PPI. will give us more information about um, you know the current state of inflation, certainly more than what the, the labor market uh, report uh, uh, actually uh, gives. Uh, I, th- I still think uh, again, I think the outlook on in inflation is favorable. Um, I, I also am going to reiterate what uh, what we had said at the end of last year, and that is the most important facet of the last FOMC meeting of Jay Powell was not so-called that he's going to lower rates by X number this year, but he shows a flexibility to do so. 
Um, if you want to know the truth, I would I would keep Fed funds at five three three if we could have the two to three percent GDP growth. Really, that would be great for the stock market. You know, there there's people out there that are saying, oh, the only way the stock market can go up is if the Fed does lower what you know what they expect or what the Fed funds futures is, uh, and that and that's not right. That's not right. Um, uh, now, it would be right if they keep it up because there's a flare-up of inflation. That would be negative. However, if growth stays strong, and therefore they keep it up at this level a little longer than, let's say, the market expects, that is in no way negative for equities. So I'm still very constructed on equities. It's not dependent on the Fed lowering the rates. It's dependent on a good economy and the, and the Fed being aware of that, and if there is any faltering of the economy that they're ready to lower the rate so again as uh, um as you know we turned we turned bullish the end of october early november that proved to be a right call here um i uh i actually see uh that the, the market is still good probably certainly not as good as it's been the last 12 18 months which has been 12 18 weeks which has been quite amazing but certainly uh, a positive trend and a, a very high gap between valuation on value stocks and growth stocks not record that was in 2020 but still high which does argue for being patient and sitting with those cyclical stocks that have pe's of 15 or lower Professor, uh, I I know in these job reports you tend to focus on hours work that also was down a tenth also. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that, Jeremy. Um, uh, again, uh, yeah, no, and in fact, <laughs> on, uh, on CNBC, no one mentioned it whatsoever. I'm not, the hours worked is down. You know, hours worked by a full one tenth is like a drop of three hundred thousand in payroll. Uh, however, you have to go to the next decimal place, which I was not able to get to see whether there was a full tenth of a percent drop, uh, even though the rounded numbers are that way. But we're, we're you know, when you, when, you, when you multiply the hours times that and you take into account the revisions, this was not a strong report, um, not overly strong report. Um, but if you take a look at all the other indicators, such as jobless claims, um, the, the, uh, the, the, the ISM service sectors came in a little bit uh, lower than expected. That was almost all due to a drop in the employment sector. Actually, new orders uh, stayed very strong. Um, the ISM manufacturing was pretty much on on expectation. So I, you know, I I don't see anything on the real side that worries me here at at, at all. Um, yes, we had a drop in household employment by quite a bit, but we had a big rise in December, and we know that's a very volatile uh, component over here. Um, also, by the way, and I'm I'm just mentioning this, we. We had a rise in bank deposits. Um, um, uh, you know that gets reported every Tuesday. It actually broke out of a range, and it, it's it's at the high of uh, of of March. Now there are a lot of year end flows, so I'm not going to say the money supply has started growing again. I've talked about that before, but that was a promising sign. We will see it in you know next week and the next couple of weeks whether uh, deposits start growing again, which I think is necessary to keep sustaining um the good economic growth that we have, have seen over the last six months hey professor it's kevin happy new year to you <laughs> too kevin um i was just i was looking back to the the private average work week for a minute and i really would love to get your take on this so since march of last year it's been either 34.3 or 34.4 right what level would you need to see to begin to get more concerned that well, the if it fell market, below that 40, if yeah. it fell below the 34.3, now, if you take a look in the past, that was just about the low. I mean, the pre-pand, uh, you know, it went up after the pandemic and now it's fallen back. And now it looks like it's falling back even below the previous one. That would be a negative, uh, a negative sign. Although, again, um, you know, if it fell back to 34.2, and I did, you you can check back, I can check back to see when it ever did that last. Uh, uh, usually in recessions, it does that. 
but it's not generally considered the leading indicator. Again, um, I prefer looking at jobless claims as the weekly indicator that's the most sensitive. And that, of course, was very strong yesterday. Um, uh, I think it was 202. Um, that's a that's a very, very good number. Um, ISM are also very timely numbers. We don't see really a lot of weakness there. Um, and again, we don't see runaway. I mean, it's not that we see a lot of strength. It's a chugging along economy, which is uh, a, a good economy in terms of um, the, the, the type of trends that we saw uh, late in 2023 um, uh, with productivity uh, and GDP growth. GDP growth looks between one and two. Um, we had an okay Christmas season, you know, pretty much on expectation, not gangbusters, but certainly not, uh, you know, not overly weak. Uh, most experts are looking for Q4 at a one to two percent rate, which is an understandable come down for the from the four point nine percent revised rate uh, that we got for the third quarter and still leads to a very good GDP growth way above expectations of a year ago and um, mostly fueled by the uh, resurgence of uh, productivity that we had uh, commented on earlier. That 202,000 you mentioned for jobless claims, it's it's quite a low figure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, is yeah. there any is there anything anything we should think about? Is there an anomaly there? Is there something holding it down that, that we should be thinking about? Not that I read. I mean, you know, there have been cases where this, you know, you can look at each state and see whether one or two is uh, not reporting right. I mean, uh, because of some reasons, uh, I I did not check that out for uh, that. I didn't see anything that looked like that. Um, if it fell below 200, you would say that's an overly tight situation. Although the jolts itself was uh, slightly weaker. We should also take into account uh, something that people have been writing about, something that I actually started talking about a year ago, and that is the JOLTS response rate has collapsed in terms of firms responding. And so in many ways, the uh, the undue em emphasis that's placed on JOLTS, uh, I think, is undue. <laughs> the emphasis is not justified. Uh, we've also had a, uh, a falling off of the response rate to the payroll, which confuses me because I thought and that's part of the government and that I thought firms are required to, to fill that out. I'll, I would have to check that out. But the fall off of payroll response rates have not been anything like the the, the drop. The drop in, in jolts response rates has been precipitous from something like 60, 70 percent down to 20, 25 percent. Um, but uh, unemployment claims have to be, you know, real numbers. But sometimes states do not get the real numbers there. I have not dug into it. If we get to 180 or 190, that's something. Let's look into that um, because that is really tight. But we're not there yet. We're staying above water on 200. Just like we had to do our alt inflation, it seems like we need alt uh, job openings. And we did do a, a show last year with uh, Julia Pollack from uh, from one of the job site companies that does have these sort of alternative jobs metrics. We'll, we'll, we'll do that again this year. Professor, just before we turn yeah. it over to the show, yeah. um, bonds, since bonds are driving everything, 4% on the 10-year, what's your call for this year? Will the stock and bond correlation go away from being so highly correlated? And what's your, your outlook for the 10-year? Okay, so, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I think long run, long run, um, we should have a Fed funds between three and three and a half and a long bond around four, which is exactly where it is with a, you know, 50, 75 percent slope on the term structure. But a lot, you know, that that's a you know, that's when things get back to normal. Um, we're still very inverted. Five thirty three on the Fed funds and four under we're one hundred and thirty three basis points inverted. So we're not getting out of that inversion again. Is one of the longest periods of time in history, inversion and no recession. Um, um, but again, this recession was one of the most unusual, if not the most unusual uh, in history. So what's um, the soft landing uh, probabilities, as I've been stating, moved uh, over 50-50 toward the end of last year, and I'm still sticking with that. Well, very good, Professor. Thank you for kicking us off to start the new year at, with uh, to kick us off the show, too. Thank you, Professor. Thank you. Thank we'll you. See, we'll see you next week. 
I'm going to now turn, welcome our guest, Chris Aceto, who is CEO of Gapsdow Capital Partners. They create some interesting looks at the alternative credit space. And, and that actually, for, for this full disclosure, Wisdom Tree licenses one of their indexes for an ETF of ours in this alternative credit space. And and uh, it's it's great to have you, Chris, to talk about this. I mean, you hear the professor's outlook on... Four percent, not much more gains in the tenure. A lot of people were adding to duration, uh, and and Kevin and I have been going back and forth. Like, is it was it too oh much in people buying duration? But there's some interesting opportunities in the credit space. We'll talk to you. Welcome to Behind the Markets here. Awesome, Jeremy. Great to be here. Happy New Year. Well, for for you, you know, people have been talking about the opportunities in this quote unquote private credit as you see the category. And as you look at, at how you wanted to build an index, maybe sort of talk about a very, very high level, why create an index for this alternative credit space and, and what you were trying to accomplish with that? Yeah, well, I think, I think it begins at the highest level, Jeremy, with um, credit as distinct from fixed income, traditional investment grade um, investments. Um, credit is really emerging as its own distinct asset class, at least I would argue. And that's certainly true amongst institutional investors. Um, and we thought that uh, working together with Wisdom Tree, you know, why, why shouldn't there be an equivalent development on the individual side, i.e. that uh, all of us with our own portfolios begin looking for greater exposure um, to, to alternative um, credit assets. And that's what really drove um, the desire to create um, an index and a fund that tracks that, that uh, you know can support those activities because uh, it's a really interesting complement both to traditional fixed income as well as equities overall. And uh, as as you know as well as everyone, but maybe a, a reminder to the audience: the goal of um, our index is to uh, reflect the performance of publicly traded funds that own credit instruments. Um, i.e. those that have higher yields and expected returns than traditional fixed income. Um, and so we're talking and we'll continue to elaborate today on business development companies, mortgage REITs, credit-centric closed end funds. And, uh, and you know, that's that's the really the core of what we're looking at. And I think the professor set up what an interesting year this is going to be, I think, let alone we can retrace a bit of 2023, which turned out to be a lot more interesting than I think any of us ever anticipated as well. I mean, yeah, last year was a particularly good year for high yield. Uh, we, we looked at sort of the major fixed income asset classes. I think it was up something like 13%. But the Glacy Index, that's sort of the gap sell liquid alternative credit index, that was up in the 20s, if I'm if, if I'm right. You are right. Yeah, somewhere, call it, uh, call it 22 or so, uh, Jeremy. And, and so, uh, you know, both levered loans and, and high yield, up, uh, yeah, 13, 14% for the year. What, what explains the difference between those two? I think it's an interesting aspect of, of our index and the, the Wisdom Tree Fund that, uh, that, uh, that follows it. Two things, I think, um, really drive this difference. First is that the vehicles we're discussing and that are as part of the index are the levered vehicles, meaning that they employ um, leverage in order to um, increase the returns um, to the fund. A normal high yield bond fund won't have any leverage. $100 will go and buy $100 of bonds. Um, the BDCs and uh, mortgage REITs and credit centric closed end funds actually will add to that dollar that gets invested in the fund to invest above that and hopefully bring some extra return. And in a year like this one, um, levered exposure to a, a strong and running asset class generally generally added some benefit. The second thing, and it's actually the more powerful one for 2023, was by virtue of being a publicly traded fund, um, they, uh, and by that we mean um, trades on exchange, these funds can trade away from net asset value. Many people are familiar that uh, that typically speaking, mutual funds, the typical mutual fund trades, meaning people come in and out of the fund as shareholders at net asset value as determined um, by a methodology and calculation agents at the end of the day. Um, 
the instruments that we've been talking about actually trade throughout the day. And if people want to sell their shares to someone else, um, they need to find another buyer. And that buyer may either offer above or below net asset value, or maybe right out net asset value. Coming to 2023, many of these um, vehicles traded at very significant dis discounts, something that we'll probably touch on later in the, in the discussion. Um, those discounts significantly collapsed during the year. And so not only was the performance of underlying collateral very satisfactorily, the price that you were paid for owning those funds increased quite substantially. And, uh, you know, directionally to break those out, you know, maybe it was half of that 22% being driven by, uh, you know, increased value and dividends from underlying collateral and half from the collapse in discount uh, to uh, to that asset value, not not fully collapsed in all cases, but certainly materially, um, because these uh, these really began with substantial discounts at the beginning of the year. Hey, Chris, it's Kevin. Quick question for you. It's been a, it's been a little while. It's great to great to be talking to you again. Yeah. Um, I, so I'm sitting here and I'm thinking. All right, the the average investor. That if somebody would have said to you a year ago. The Fed's going to raise rates another 100 basis points. Do you think they would think something like the alt credit space, which rightly or wrongly, they somehow, you know, mix in with fixed income or whatever, that you would see a return like we saw in Glacy? Did that surprise you at all? And if it did or didn't, um, you know, where was that outperformance really coming from? Yeah, so it, it was fascinating to hear uh, Professor Siegel's recount of where he sees the world right now. Um, I don't remember his view, but I think our collective views as a financial community coming into last year was going to be a tough year, likely to hit recession, um, you know, uh, th things, defaults picking up, um, consumers really challenged. And I think what happened through 2023 on the fundamental side was we really didn't hit those headwinds. We had a very interesting speed bump in March, which was the banking crisis. Thankfully, that was very quickly dissipated with only um, three or four banks globally um, of, of any size um, you know, being affected. Um, and then we got the significant interest rate increase over time, the 100 basis points you're talking about, but at the same time, you began to see credit spreads come in and come in quite substantially, come in 150 basis points end to end throughout the year. And, you know, I think that's a, a significant reflection around. And, and a lot of that happened, as we know, towards the end of the year um, with people's reflection that, you know, lower for longer got people worried, which began to transpire. And I think Professor Siegel said it is sort of the flexible for longer maybe going forward and uh and and with that in mind uh, you know people people uh, coupled with really better than expected economic news particularly through the second half of the year that uh, you know people i think began to feel pretty good about uh, paying up for what otherwise at the beginning of the year they saw as higher and riskier assets um you know that that uh, what we thought for sure um, you know, the recession at some point in the latter half of 2023. And now, now, if you believe the professor, we're, we're, we're not, we're barely going to see any hint of that in 2024. And I think all of that really conspired to begin to bring, um, spreads in, um, to more than compensate for the increases in yield, uh, uh interest rates in, in 2023. We, we've had I some, mean, you brought up oh. the, the... go ahead. I'm sorry, Jack. We've had some historical high volatility in in yield, so it's hard to make too much from one week. Um, you saw a little bit of, of spread widening last week for high yield. But if you were to say where are, just to help frame people, we said about the 10-year as we're talking right now, 10 years exactly at 4.00. Where are the yields on these baskets in your index? If you were to just give some sense of the, the yields at the index level like what what is the whole space doing how does it compare across the subcategories we'll obviously drill into all the details but just to, to frame why yep. why it's sort of interesting today where are the yields yeah well these are very high yielding instruments and so uh, average yields right now are still well above 10 percent for the index overall and let's be specific that's kind of a 
number that jumps out, 10, 11 plus percent um, distributable yield. So that is actually cash that is available from the underlying instruments um, within the index um, through, throughout the year, annualized. Um, the reason that these are such cash generative um, underlying holdings are that first of all, they begin with fixed income and higher yielding fixed income instruments, whether they be loans for commercial real estate lending or uh, acquisition finance among corporations with the application of leverage that then further enhances the cash flow and distributable yield um, to each of the underlying funds, um, which uh, again begins to, uh, to bring up the yield, coupled with yet again, a smaller discount, smaller than it was at the beginning of the year, um, enhances the yield relative to your purchase price, since you're buying shares at a, at a little bit of a discount today, and then lastly, the fact that these entities are not taxed, they're, they're, they're flow-through vehicles that must distribute their income, um, that all lends itself to uh, the generation of very, very high levels of distributable, true distributable um, income uh, that get created by the funds, and, and that must be distributed to investors. I was going to mention to you, Chris, um, you know, you, you referenced March of last year, uh, obviously the regional bank turmoil that we had. And, you know, another shoe that everyone keeps talking about, I don't hear it as much lately to drop um, commercial real estate. And, you know, I, I certainly the 100 basis point decline we've seen in, in treasury yields and, and almost mortgage rates themselves has certainly right. provided, I think, a nice, nice tailwind for the, the mortgage rate sector commercial real estate is it still out there is it still something that investors should be keeping a wary eye on uh yeah for sure uh kevin i i think we all see it around us um but but let's be more specific about what we're talking about um as you know commercial real estate really is a, a multiple sectors uh, uh within that phrase you're using um, there is multifamily housing, there's hotels, there's industrial parks. I think the ones that we're really concerned about are offices. Um, and depending on what sizing you're using, offices might be between 20 and 30% of the overall uh, commercial real estate uh, market. And when one thinks about challenges to commercial real estate, um, it really lies in the, uh, the 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 office sector and the impact, um, particularly that work from home and our new collective relationship with showing up in, in physical proximity to our colleagues every day, and and the need for, uh, for for that space or lack of need for that space and the ability to transform that over time, and and those those concerns are very legitimate, particularly in some 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 specific cities. New York and San Francisco and a, and a few other ones that are, are being probably impacted a little bit more um, than our others. And, and, and that's where we're seeing the cause um, uh, of, of concern. That's not to say the others don't have certain concerns with them as well, with mortgage rates going up and, and, and uh, cap rates going up. Um, but I think one rationalizes an interest in commercial real estate lending right now and, and owning commercial real estate loans a couple fold. Number one, new loans being made are being made at very nice spreads um, and are uh, being done with very strong properties. Um, and, you know, you also then have to think about uh, the fact that hopefully office is a smaller part of the existing portfolios of many, many loans. And so the, uh, you know, the fact that it might be 20% of certain mortgage REIT portfolios, um, that only a certain percentage of those will eat financial difficulty and that there will be some recovery value that hopefully in portfolios, this is a, a manageable as opposed to a uh, meltdown situation within, uh, within commercial real estate debt. Um, I'm actually pretty bullish on a forward-looking basis. I, I think, uh, you know, we, we recognize the issue. New loans are being made um, to quality properties and, uh, and lenders are getting paid a, uh, a good premium for it, partially because there are perceived risks and partially because uh, 
because of March. Um, banks have been asked by regulators to cut back on commercial real estate lending. And this leaves a lot of opportunity for non-bank lenders to really step in and uh, and uh, and 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 use their balance sheets instead of banks' balance sheets to uh, to support commercial real estate development and acquisition. Well, Kevin, this is uh, one of the hot topics, and this is this is one of those topics that was pretty uh, interesting in, in in the social media world. You know, it, it, the way you guys, Chris, access commercial real estate lending in this index. There's sort of some of the big name brand firms that people would be familiar with. Starwood is one of the the big ones. But Blackstone yep. is another big one. And uh, it, it, at the end of December, right before the holidays, I don't know, we didn't talk about this before, but Muddy Waters put out this big short report. It's like this 50-page short report yep. about the Blackstone sort of mortgage trust, which is one of the ways of getting commercial real estate lending in your index. Now, um, you know, the, the price. maybe you have some views on the price nav, maybe you have some views on... I don't know if you if you looked at that short report, but there's there's some yep. conversations about what that is. So what what's your current take on that whole dynamic? Yeah, I, I did read the report, and uh, look, I think it's a it barely represents people's concern about commercial real estate, and then they're very specific about what was going on in, in EXMT, and that 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 on the day of announcement drove uh, the price of of BXMT as well as the commercial real estate mortgage rate sector um, down uh, 4%, 8%, I believe, if I remember correctly, in Blackstone's case. Um, you know, so there, there was a real impact. It is interesting how much, if not all of that, has been retraced um, in the rally that we've seen towards the end of the year um, with the uh, with commercial real estate um, REITs that in December, collectively, at least the ones represented in the index, uh, were up nearly 9%. Um, so um, I, I don't know if that's a repudiation of the report. Uh, uh, clearly, they have a longer term view in mind than simply December. And these will go up and down. But, you know, it was, uh, uh, you know, a lot of that initial impact was, uh, was, uh, was then, you know, reverse reasonably quickly by uh, by market action overall and in fact i think amongst the the sectors within uh, within uh, the, the glacy index commercial real estate was really the strongest um at the end of the year that's interesting in, in terms of the highest yields um it, it where you know you mentioned 11 10 to 11 percent is it true that the agency real estate market is where you get some of the highest yields and that's sort of some of the mortgage REITs you had? Bill Gross actually make some big public statements about a few of the ones like Annalee, Agency are some of the big agency real estate mortgage REITs. Uh, and he was talking about that as a way to play curve inversion. If I'm not mistaken, he was talking about the, 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 the agency REITs, mortgage REITs, as well as some of the banks where he thought were undervalued based on some of the curve inversions uh, coming together but what what any thoughts on that yeah i uh I, uh, first of all uh, agency uh, uh yields right now on agency mortgage reads are uh are mid-teens um they're they're the ones sure. that have the highest amongst the the universe of uh, vehicles that we've been talking about um and and just uh so so listeners uh, uh understand uh Agency mortgage REITs um, do a very particular thing. They buy um, mortgage-backed securities that uh, that are guaranteed uh, by the U.S. government, um, and then add a, a substantial amount of leverage to ownership. Several of them do other peripheral things, but that's the primary um, uh, activity of uh, of an agency mortgage REIT. And so because of the higher leverage, this is a yield curve uh, type uh, trade. This is borrowing less than it costs to uh, uh, than the yield that you're going to be getting by the asset you're purchasing and, and, and make use of that carry um, to make money. And that's that's been particularly challenged earlier in the show. We talked about the fact that uh, the yield curve has been inverted I, and amazingly. This has been an entire year. It started towards the end of 2022, and we've gone a year, let alone that it hasn't 
been associated with the recession yet, which is historically anomalous. Uh, but I think more interestingly is just the duration of it, that it has been a long standing inversion where short rates remain above high rates. Usually that gets corrected pretty quickly, um, certainly well within a year. And so, so I think, um, while I, I don't know Bill Gross's uh, direct comment on this, I think many people have thought, boy, if there was, what would be an instrument out there that I could own, a fund that I could own, where if in fact we begin to see a normalization of rates, which means perhaps a slight diminution of the absolute level of rates combined with a normalization, as Professor Siegel said, of, of say a 50, 50 basis point yield curve, where short-term funding was below uh, the longer-term instruments, what would I want to own in those cases? You'd probably want to own uh, mortgage-backed securities, which bring duration to them and uh, you know get funded to a very significant extent. And my guess is that's what Bill Gross had behind in his thinking, which is these these funds should be very sensitive to that normalization uh, of, uh, of interest rates, just as banks are. Um, the analogy, I think, is a correct one, which are, you know, banks fund short term through most cases deposits and uh, make longer term holdings or, or loans. And uh, and like agency rates have been really beaten up over the course of uh, over the course of 22 which was disastrous as we got 400 basis points of, uh, of, of you know, interest rate increases, uh, you know, a rate and a pace and a magnitude that uh, is, 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 is rarely seen. Um, but that bond math also can work in reverse. And uh, again, if one believes that we're at the top of the interest rate cycle, I'm not calling top, but there's greater chance of the normalization than there is of continued rising rates plus continued inversion, um, maybe that forms the base of an interesting long idea. A lot of conversations that I have, usually about the all credit space, tends to focus on one, two, maybe three of the separate asset classes we've kind of talked about or alluded to here. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about Glacy to get a, let's go under the hood a little bit here. And within Glacy, it's not singular in nature. It's more diversified in the all credit space, which, you know, in, in my opinion, is what you want to be looking for in this type of a solution. So I was wondering if you could talk us through that a little bit. Uh, happy, happy to do so, so Kevin. Um, first, first of all, the again, getting back to the high level, um, the, the alternative credit space is diverse. Um, and the economy is diverse, so it should reflect it, that there are higher um, yielding opportunities to lend to corporations, yes. But there are also higher yielding opportunities to lend to people who want to buy buildings or develop buildings. Uh, there are opportunities to lend to consumers, both for uh, purchases of goods but also, and most importantly, their house. Uh, so residential lending as well. The, the, we wanted to make sure that the, the index purposefully captured all of those opportunities. And so the holdings within it, we think, um, represent a, a, a diversified weighting of exposure to corporations and households and commercial real estate sponsors in their lending. Um, and, and the principle behind that is, is really a simple observation, which is that all of those sectors of the economy have different states of their balance sheet at any one point in time. As much as we often say, where are we in the credit cycle singular? In fact, in our economy, we have multiple credit cycles happening asynchronously, that at any given point in time, financial institutions may be healthier or not than households, may be healthier or not than corporations, healthier or not than commercial real estate. Um, difficulty is being able to predict exactly um, whose credit worthiness is, is best at any one given point in time. And so there's a value to, uh, to, to holding a diversified set of exposures 
overall. And I, I think 2023 was very telling in that regard. If you look at the six different sub-segments within the Glacy Index, um, reflecting different borrowers and the investments that, uh, that you hold for that, um, there, there was, while everything was up and uh, the index came in at about a, a positive 22% total return, that range, that ranged quite significantly. And at the two extremes, agency uh, mortgage REITs, which, uh, as, as we talked about earlier, own uh, agency-sponsored mortgage-backed securities, returned about 5% for the year. Non-agency residential lenders returned 35% for the year. Uh, Non-agency lenders, as the name implies, are the people who buy MBS and make loans to people who don't get given government guarantees. And we wanted to make sure within the index that we had that balance there because there are good reasons, um, fundamental and technical reasons for, uh, for why there was a divergence of performance that year. But it was nice to be able to hold um, the balance of, of both of those rather than uh, either purposefully or um, not purposefully loading up on one relative um, to the other. Similarly, um, private corporate lending really outperformed uh, the more public um, securities forms of corporate lending. And, uh, and those will wax and wane relative to each other. Um, it, the goal is to make sure that we hold within the, uh, within the index um, the, the, the range of opportunities so as to take advantage of that uh, diversification. So from a portfolio solution perspective, where you're looking for alt credit, you're looking for something, a vehicle um, utilizing Glacy, how do we, how should we be looking at this in terms of correlation, say, versus the S&P, versus the ag? Um, yeah. Give us a, some insights on that. What, what kind of correlation between those two broad indexes that everyone is benchmarking to, essentially? How does Glacy fit into to that in terms of a portfolio solution? Yeah, well, I, th I think it, it reflects the way people are thinking about alternative credit. As I mentioned at the beginning of my comments, credit is really emerging as a distinct asset class relative to equities and to fixed income, which said differently that the risks inherent in credit worthiness are not fully correlated with equity risk and duration risk um, and those those correlations um, you know will, will vary obviously through throughout time but nonetheless they're not perfectly correlated and therefore um, adding credit as a distinct asset class really helps um, an overall portfolio um, in, in not necessarily as a substitute for either of those, but really as a complement, um, that the correlations are not perfect. Um, recently, they've been a little stronger to equity, um, but the correlation with duration recently has been, uh, you know, really not that strong um, at all, um, historically. And so, so, uh, so there, there is a portfolio theory for why you want to take uh, credit exposure in a, a more concentrated and purposeful manner. You know, one of the, I think, real interesting portfolio allocation questions today is we've been talking about the rising correlation between stocks and bonds, and one of the things keeping longer term yields higher. Um, but, you know, when, I, when we talk about the outlook, uh, you know, and Siegel is generally decently bullish on this year, call it 8 to 10% is his returns, but also what he thinks long run, you know, you got used to get closer to 10% in equities. Now with a 20 PE of 5% earnings yield, that's more like seven to 8% long-term from the S&P 500. If you're getting 10 to 11 in this, right, for sure in a tax deferred yep. account where you're not paying taxes, it's yep. it's sort of much more yep. interesting. I mean, in, in a taxable account, it gets you closer to, but you know, you got to pay capital gains in stocks. But the the risk is in this, hey, in a recession cycle, spreads blow out, we have losses. But how would you, you, you mentioned sort of the levered version, there's leverage coming here. So in some ways, you could see the levered version of high yield last year. But how would you say the credit profile of this compares to the aggregate credit profile on like a high yield bond index? Yeah, well, it, 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 there, it, 
Some are very directly comparable. So a closed-end fund that owns high yield is very comparable to a high yield index. Um, it should have a higher beta because there is a third leverage in, in, the, in most of those cases associated with it. But the correlations should be pretty strong. There should be some active management and hopefully some good stock picking going along with that or, or bond picking going along with that. But uh, that's, that those, those should be very highly correlated. Commercial mortgage REITs, though, um, you know, that is a very different um, set of activities. Making loans for a diverse portfolio of commercial real estate activities um, will, will, in most likelihoods, not have, uh, as from the underlying collateral, a very high correlation necessarily with, uh, with high yield. Uh, now, it's traded in a public vehicle so that, uh, you know, those, those pick up a bit of market beta to them. Um, but the uh, but the but the credit worthiness is a different one um, than uh, than what you get in a corporate high yield bond fund. Different profile, um, as is very different from the household residential mortgage um, lenders as well. So you know that begs the question, right? I mean, we're looking at how does alt credit fit in the portfolio? Talking about the correlations everybody wants to be a market timer out there it seems these days you know jerry yeah. i think you were talking about it earlier going long duration when should i do it what about now with rates coming down 100 basis points from their october peaks so if you're looking at all credit within the portfolio would you be looking at this as more of a strategic investment or on the tactical side um there are elements of both, Kevin, but let me be more specific than evasive in my, in my response. I think if, if you thought about credit investing 10 years ago, most people would say credit is a tactical asset class, um, especially when interest rates were lower, meaning I don't know if I want this in my portfolio at all points in time, but, but when spreads really expand, I'll jump in. Um, if there's a distress cycle, I'll put money to work in distressed and then I'll get out and I'll know exactly how to time that. I, I think that thinking in the investment community is really beginning to subside and people are now thinking of credit as a strategic part of an asset allocation. Again, distinct from fixed income, i.e. duration and an equity risk. Part of that is you know, everyone's recognition eventually that timing those jump ins and jumps out are not as easy as it was. But also, I think, and, and much more importantly, is the idea that, especially now with rates where they are, that actually having credit in the portfolio at all points in time, higher yields typically lead to um, higher returns over time that are looking pretty good relative to both fixed income and to to equity, not necessarily topping equity, um, but but certainly within the the, uh, the 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 directionals, the range of where stronger returns should be for taking more risk, and uh, and and therefore, given that it's diversifying and higher yielding, producing more cash, that there's that can play a very important role. And as a result, I think you're seeing people who kind of like with equity will now say um, this should be x percent of my portfolio at all points in time plus or minus y meaning when i have good feelings bad feelings or things are changing in my portfolio maybe i'll move up or move down but i don't move back to zero in my allocation that i think is the the emerging um, better view of where credit is and and if we look at the institutional community um you know, what are those allocations? You will now find a typical U.S. pension plan has upwards of 10% in alternative credit investments. And by the way, has designs on doing even more. Um, there are many pens, public pensions out there that now are in the mid to higher teens on alternative credit allocations. Um, so th these are not, these are not uh, kind of satellite um adventures for for people in the investing community these are now credit is becoming a core holding in 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 many people's asset classes and and investment policy statements 
So at a 60-40 level, maybe 5% is what we're saying, 5 to 10% could could be stretching it. But then t- you got to figure out where you, you take it from. It seems like there's some equity level of risk, some Certainly, it's a credit, sort of the high yield component of an allocation is is one of the things you're funding it from with these extra high yields. It's it's certainly an interesting place given the, the macro backdrop that we're talking about, lower probability recession, good for credit, but not maybe, you know, the Siegel view, not much move in the tenure. So this is a way to pick up some some nice yield. Kevin, as you think about wrapping in our final minute, uh, thoughts? Final final thoughts on on how to think about using alternative credit. Yeah, I mean, I'm 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 in agreement with Chris. Looking at this, um, it, it's it's fascinating to see kind of this transformation, right? I think Chris, as you were saying, that perhaps in the beginning it was viewed as tactical, but really we should be thinking about it strategic and essentially toggling back and forth, but not going to zero. And, and yeah. I think the other interesting aspect to this is. You know, you just go back before the Fed raised rates, right? Everyone, you know, we were back in that starving for yield, reaching for yield or searching for yield. And, you know, my argument would be that this is searching for yield. You're not reaching for yield. And you were looking at, say, let's call it yield levels in the all credit space. Let's say 8%, 8 8.5%. And everyone's like, ooh, that sounds real good. But now, back to the professor's point, you got a 4% tenure. Now you're talking about lower double digit we gotta which we gotta sign off so chris acido kevin flanagan been fun conversation you can find more at gapstow capital partners for more on their glacy index i'm jeremy schwartz you'll be listening to behind the markets thanks Dion simpkins on the soundboard have a great week everybody thanks for listening to the behind the markets podcast if you want to learn more about wisdom tree visit wisdomtree.com you can also follow me on twitter at jeremy d schwartz I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 